Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Arne Westad. I'm the director of LNC Ideas, and I want to welcome all of you to this European Institute Perspectives on Europe public lecture. And it's a great honor and pleasure for us to have the Norwegian Foreign Minister, Mr. Berge Brende, to introduce on foreign policy in a time of turmoil. Now, Berge has been the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Norway since October 2013, but he has a long ministerial career. Going back to the early 2000s, he was the Minister of Environment in the previous Norwegian government from 2001 to 2004, and he was Minister of Trade and Industry between 2004 and 2005. He's represented the Norwegian Conservatives, Høyre, in the Norwegian Parliament since uh, 1997. But he's also had, and this is perhaps what is most uncommon, I think, uh, for someone serving in his position now, he's had a wide career outside of politics. Um, he served as chairman of the UN Commission on Sustainable Development between 2003 and 2004. Um, he has also been the managing director for the World Economic Forum, and he has directed the Norwegian Red Cross. So it's a composite career in terms of background. Now, we're very much looking forward to hearing the Foreign Minister's presentation today. Um, we will make sure that there is enough time for questions and answers afterwards. I'm sure there are a number of issues that you want to bring up. Uh, it would be strange if you had a Foreign Minister for the country with the world's largest sovereign wealth fund before you, and you didn't want to ask him probing questions about Norway's approach to international affairs. But it's a great pleasure to welcome you to LSE. We are very much looking forward to your lecture and to the Q&A afterwards. Welcome. Thank you uh, very much, and thank you for the great turnout. Uh, it is a great privilege for me to be invited to talk to you and uh, here at the uh, London School of uh, uh, Economics. Um, and uh, as you know, the topic is uh, in time of uh, turmoil. Uh, professor was mentioning uh, that I also had been uh, in the Red Cross, and I, I think that has uh, come in handy uh, the last year with all the crisis. I think also Norway is one of the few countries where having uh, been uh, the Secretary General of Red Cross is a prerequisite for becoming Foreign Minister. Uh, there have been a couple of us. Uh, I think uh, the humanitarian angle to what is now taking place uh, globally uh, is not uh, a bad uh, one. It's always energizing uh, to be among uh, students. Uh, I remember uh, myself uh, in such a situation, of course, too. and. Um, just um, uh, thought of uh, uh, one time I was very privileged to uh, hear the former speaker Tip O'Neill of the House of, um, he was the speaker of the House in the US, maybe in a less uh, toxic and less um, uh, partisan uh, situation that we're seeing uh, currently. And what made a, a great impression on me, and that is also have I've tried to live up in my career in politics um, after that, is he told uh, a story from uh, when uh, he came back and visited his father in Boston after he became the speaker. Uh, his old father in um, a labor part of, of Boston, he said, 
uh, to Tip, congratulated him on the new position, was very proud, but said, uh, Tip, uh, remember, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. <laughs> um, so, uh, to the topic today about uh, uh, foreign policy in a time of turmoil. Let me maybe then start, uh, try to start on a positive note, because there are so many opportunities to come back uh, to the challenges. Uh, I think we need to take um, uh, into account that uh, with 7 billion people uh, on our planet, we have never been in a situation where so many of us have uh, lived with such a life standard. Uh, there is a lot of poor people still, there are a lot of challenges, uh, but never has so many people learned to read, write, uh, also uh, enjoyed a higher life standard than before. And uh, in 1990, 42% of the global population uh, was living um, in extreme poverty, 42%. Today, 20% of the global population is living in extreme poverty, and in the meantime, we have added 1.7 billion people on top of it. So it is even more significant when we see that it's gone from 40 to 20%. 1.7 billion additional people since 1990. Just to understand how much this is. I looked it up on the internet last night. I hope it's right. Uh, I checked a couple of sources, but uh, uh, you never know with that dis disclaimer. I, I think uh, around 1900, around last um, century, that was the total population on our planet. 1.7 billion people. And that we have just added in 20 years. And um, I think if we are no um, visionary, if we are doing things right, I think also when we're setting the new millennium development goals called the Sustainable Development Goals um, for 2030, I think it is possible to eradicate all extreme poverty. We have halved the amount of people living in extreme poverty in um, 15 years, and uh, we can uh, reach that goal, provided that we also are able to manage uh, the current challenges that we are faces, facing. And uh, I think the, um, last year has shown us that the development is not linear. Uh, we have been through some uh, great uh, decades uh, with growth, but the last year, <laughs> since I took over as foreign minister, I think things have been uh, adding up uh, the turmoil and the challenges. I think, though, that the first major challenge we have seen uh, in a couple of decades started in 2008 uh, with the fall of Lehman Brothers and the economic um, challenges that we were facing. That could have easily ended in a Great Depression if it was not handled right. I, I, we were so close to the brink um, with that crisis. Then, exceptionally enough, the world came together in 2008. Lehman Brothers fell in uh, September. I was at the World Economic Forum at that time. I was preparing Davos. I remember this very vividly. But in 
October, world leaders came together for the first time in the world leader context in G20 and agreed on very unorthodox stimulus. Um, fiscal policy and a monetary policy that uh, was of a magnitude that this um, potential depression ended in a great recession instead. And that kind of coming to together to solve problems, I think we're missing uh, when it comes to the current challenges that we are seeing, and we need to revive uh, that kind of spirit. I also think that uh, the crisis in 2008 learned us some lessons. Firstly, sound economics, balanced budgets, and also financial institutions that don't have tools and vehicles and systems that that you cannot understand is not a good idea. Common sense was not so common at that time, but you know, having balanced budget, sound economic policy is a good thing. Secondly, I think we really, all of us understood that we are in a globalized world. We are in the same boat. Remember after Lehman fell and there was a huge focus on the subprime loans in the US, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is a US problem. Uh, they talked about decoupling. Uh, you know, this is a challenge that the US will have to face. Three, four months later, the challenges in the periphery of Europe were larger than in the US. Hmm. And we saw this spreading to Latin America. We saw it also in the emerging uh, economies. We are living in a truly globalized world. Of course, this is also related to how the world has developed since the 70s. If you compare today with the 70s, the value of the global trade has increased by a factor of eight. That means that we are eight times more relying on our neighbors, mm. and they're doing well today than we were only in the 70s. So when one, one country has a problem, very easily other countries will have it, and uh, also the contrary. I think we realize that. Then I think we also uh, saw that making predictions or saying something exact about the future is something that you're not so good at. Uh, even the leading economists of the world cannot Many of them say that we predicted the fall of Lehman Brothers and the financial crisis that ended in the economic uh, crisis. But what we, can, what we have learned is that those countries that were most resilient and had the best system to cope with it was the ones that came uh, and managed this the best. Mm. So we as politicians, I cannot predict about the future, but what I can do as Foreign Minister of Norway is making sure that we are well prepared for economic challenges, but we also have a security policy that is ready to cope with the unpredictable. And you know, looking into the future and then predicting is something uh, that is um, is not so easy. Even the, the leading economists and even the e even the economists, um, I guess many of you uh, read that every Friday when it co comes out. So remember the front page of the economists in the uh, late uh, 80s, picture of Japan, 
buying the rest of the world. Mm. Two months later, the country has not grown for two decades. Uh, late 90s, the sick man of Europe, guess who that was? That was Germany, before Schroeder started with the reforms followed up by Merkel. That was the sick man of Europe. Also shows that, that you can change your destiny if you have a policy for increasing combativeness and addressing uh, the broader issues. So then coming uh, back uh, to the not linear um, uh, situation and the challenges that we are uh, facing now. I'm talk I have talked now about uh, the economic challenges, not only because I was at the LS I'm at LSC, uh, but because I think it gives an illustration also on the more security um, uh, related challenges that we are facing um, uh, today. And they have not been that predictable either. If I was asked to uh, make an intervention here uh, a year ago, I don't think any one of us would have predicted that an extremist organization that is so extreme that it was even expelled from Al-Qaeda would dominate an area from Aleppo close to the Mediterranean in Syria all the way to take Mosul, second largest city with two million people in Iraq, close to Erbil, 20 kilometers from the capital of, of the Kurds, and also close to Baghdad. This happened in a year. And this organization produces 40,000 barrels a day of uh, petroleum. This organization has seen an influx of foreign fighters that is unparalleled. Maybe there are 18,000, 19,000 foreign fighters joining ISIL, that have joined ISIL in Iraq and in Syria. So no, we have to handle this. Then, if a year ago, if someone said that in Europe, there would be a situation where one European country decided to take a part of another European country, an annexation, and then making part of that country even into um, a lawless area, like we're seeing in Donbass today. And um, of course, this is not sticking to international law. And I think international law is where it is so crucial. International law is really our defense for wealth creation and where we are today. That is the purpose of international law. And if we in Europe in the 21st century have a situation where uh, international law is not complying with international law, it's extremely serious. And I don't think either we should underestimate what you create when you have nationalists, if they're pro-Russian or other nationalists, creating a gray zone area of lawlessness, this can very easily get out of control. And this is also coming back to ISIL and Syria and Iraq. This has become a proxy war where different countries in the region, they have um, their views on how they want the region to move. And then there has been a situation where one have been using different actors to reach different goals, but suddenly uh, creation, an evil creation like ISIL has uh, been uh, created. And I think uh, everyone knows this, that this cannot continue. And this also 
uh, is getting out of control. But when you're going to face such an organization as ISIL, uh, you cannot, um, you have to think through how to deal with it uh, in a sound and effective way. I think also we have to be realistic that this is not dealt with in two, three months. It is something uh, that we will continue to deal with in the coming years. And I think the UN Security Council resolution on ISIL uh, shows a much more comprehensive way of looking at this. Why could this, for example, happen in Iraq as an illustration? When a government of Maliki has been following a sectarian policy where you have then uh, been neglecting 25% of your population that is Sunni, Sunnis, for many years. Of course, they are much more prone for then uh, uh, this kind of agitation from a uh, terrorist organization as ISIL. So what we had to do before then also um, dealing with Iraq was saying to Iraq that you cannot continue with that government. You need an inclusive government that is also in including the Kurds, the Sunnis, and based on that, everyone in that country have to, be, have to feel like a real citizen of that country. Based on that, we also reach out to the Arab world, to the Gulf countries, and this coalition now for fighting ISIL is mm. also a coalition where the Arabs are in the front. Mm. If this is seen as the West going together with the Shiites that are supported by Iran and then starting to fight ISIL, and uh, you will very easily come into a situation where it's seen as a fight against um, Sunnis. And that would really be creating challenges. This is a fight for law, dignity, and uh, human rights. And we have to work very, very closely uh, with uh, the Arab countries. And on uh, Ukraine uh, and Russia's um, unacceptable uh, way um, of an, an unacceptable annexation. I very often also get the question, um, do these sanctions work? You cannot, in the 21st century, take the step of annexation of another country where you never question the borders. Quite a country. In 1994, Russia signed the Budapest Memorandum, accepting the borders of Ukraine, and where Ukraine handed over the third largest arsenal of nuclear weapons in the world, and uh, Russia said, this is Ukraine, we are also leasing two naval bases on Crimea, but this is the country. We cannot be in a situation where we are not reacting to this. What kind of signal would that send in heart of Europe in the 21st century, and we would just not react to it? And it is working. It is the psychological effect of these sanctions should not be underestimated. I think that Mr. Putin think twice before he takes the next step um, and not sticking to international law. I'm not saying that that will not happen, but I'm saying we'll think twice. And uh, we are in a situation where the ruble has depreciated by 23% the last um, uh, three months. We know that Russia is also two-thirds of its export is related to energy, and with the oil price going from 110 US dollars uh, to 
um, uh, to less than 80, there are challenges. Mm. I just met a friend, a Russian friend the other day. I, I did also meet Sergey Lavrov. He was in Norway uh, three weeks ago. That was a, a constructive but tough conversation. But this was a business person uh, related to this. And I, I said to him, uh, Mr. So-and-so, I don't want to disclose the name. Um, I said to him, how is really the Russian economy no going? And he looked at me, that was like falling down from the moon, said, Minister, worse than last year, but better than next year. <laughs> I, the lesson is, if today you need to be part of the globalized world, you need to be part of the international trade, you need to be collaborative and you need to contribute uh, to uh, be um, a part of this. And what we are seeing currently from Moscow that I have dealt with uh, for many years, and I know that um, appeasement is not the way. That does not get any kind of respect. We have to say that we are not seeing a new Cold War. We are ready even to lift all the sanctions if Russia is turning and also sticking to international law. That's... Um, that's the thing. But what we have to fight is this zero-sum game thinking. If, if you win something, we lose something. No, the world has shown us, since the Marshall Plan of the U.S. after 45 has shown us that you need others to be successful, to be successful yourself. This is a win-win world. Uh, the Americans uh, contributed in a monumental way in Europe wasn't truly altruism, it was part of it. But it was also that the US knew that if Europe was successful, they would also have a market in Europe, and this was good for the world. And this is where I think the world has also changed compared to the Cold War. You know, you probably remember the Soviet Union. Uh, Soviet Union was forever uh, until it was no more talking about predictions. What, what brought down the Soviet Union was a lack of competitiveness and economic growth. Had no chance to follow up on the arms race when, uh, when Reagan launched the SDI initiative. Uh, there is clear correlation between economic strength and also military strength and, of course, uh, having uh, a prosperous life uh, for uh, your population. But what we see today compared to the Cold War, if you had the Soviet Union that had, had its satellites and had its trading system, and then the West. Today, the world is much more different. When Fukushima, the nuclear accident happened in Japan with Fukushima, a week later, factories closed in China because they had important parts made in the Fukushima area for their factory because we have a global supply chain. So they could not continue to produce what they were producing because they were missing those parts that were produced in Fukushima. And those countries that are part of a global win-win system are also so much relying on each other. And this is the change because US and China that are very much leading economies today together with Europe we are all in the same boat, and we are so much trading with each other that we have a common interest 
in each other succeeding. Of course, there will be competition. Of course, there will be also challenges and conflicts. But bottom line, we will not see a cold war because it is too costly. It is too much at stake. And every politician, every governmental leader knows that growth and a prosperous world and trade is really what matters. And I think also that is the last lesson learned from the financial crisis in 2008. Why did we, in addition to fiscal and monetary stimulus, and avoid um, this huge crisis of a depression? You know, remember, 50% of people were unemployed in the 30s. 50% of the trade just um, uh, were not there anymore. 25% of the global GDP um, was taken away. That was also because of protectionism. Countries started not trading to each other. One said that we will protect ourselves by not trading. And that led and also led to a continued crisis. What we had in 2008 was the WTO, World Trade Organization, with its rules-based multilateral system, protecting trade between countries. So nobody trading more with each other than they did before 2008. But we're still in a situation where Europe's total GDP is less than it was before 2008. That's how serious it was. The lesson learned is that when we are now coping with Syria, Iraq, when we're coping with Ebola, when we're coping also with the situation in Gaza, when we are still not out of the woods when it comes to the global economy, we have to work together. We have to know, see that we can establish new mechanisms and new tools that can bring more growth and more inclusive job-creating growth. Because in the coming six years, we have to create 600 million new jobs globally. And this can only be done if we trade more, if we have a successful dough around, and if we're also standing together, not making those security risks that we're seeing now spreading, and that we also stand up for each other. And this is my last point, coming back to the humanitarian piece. We have to know that when there is a crisis in Eritrea, or there is war in Mogadishu, this is not ending there. We can see that through the Mediterranean today. Thousands of people have been killed. It's almost like a graveyard. These are people that are fleeing from countries where there is war and conflict. We have to invest with ODA, and we, it's also in our national interest. Of course, it's a humanitarian uh, imperative, but it's also in our national interest to make sure that the world is not melting down because these problems will not only stay there anymore. These are global challenges and problems. That's why we have this refugee crisis that is the worst one since the 1945s. If we have invested and been much more strategic, Syria would not have gone from being a middle-income country in 2012 to be a humanitarian disaster, catastrophe today. We have to act together. We have to internalize that we cannot listen to populism, protectionism, and the easiest solutions. We have to, as I said, stick together as one world and as global citizens. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bergip. That's a 
very impressive overview of the world and its ills today, but also some glimmers of hope about cooperation, about the potential for different countries, including small countries, to, um, to have a real impact. Now, I'm going to open up for questions and answers. We have almost exactly 20 minutes to do that. But let me just um, start by one question. Actually, a number of things you can ask. I mean, don't, don't be afraid to ask questions. I mentioned the Sovereign Wealth Fund. I mentioned, uh, or maybe I haven't mentioned yet, um, Norway's role as uh, a country that takes initiative in terms of peace negotiations around the world. Uh, at one point, at least, uh, as my friend Marek Golding used to put it, the world's, the world's foremost peacemonger. Um, the, uh, the fact that the foreign minister represents a government, the first one in Norway's history, where the traditional conservative party is in a coalition with a right-wing populist party, the Progress Party, known for its, at least previously, for its anti-immigration stance and its view on spending uh, a lot of the oil income at home. So lots of questions, but I'm not going to go there. I wanted to ask you one question to begin with about Norway and China. <laughs> now, I'm from, I'm from Norway, but I study China. At least that's part of, part of what I do. So I was wondering, in terms of the Chinese attempts um, at punishing Norway collectively, as it were, after the award of the Nobel Peace Prize to Li Xiaobo. Are there now any signs of an improvement in this relationship? Do you think that the Chinese are starting to wonder about the effects that this would have in a broader context? What, what do you see on the horizon for that particular relationship? And your next question was? <laughs> we'll, 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 I, I leave to others to get to get the other questions. I, I don't have a chance to ask Thank you. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Um, also, it would have been tempting to say something about the Southern Belgium, also about um, uh, the center, center-right environment that we have uh, in Norway. Uh, we do collaborate also with the Liberal Party and the Christian Democrats. So the basis for the government uh, is uh, what is in uh, that document that is developed. And, uh, this is a document about tolerance, uh, international uh, cooperation uh, and trade. On China, uh, it is true, and um, uh, you know very well that uh, after uh, the Nobel Peace Prize uh, in 2010 to Liu uh there um, has been limited um, political uh, collaboration between uh, China and Norway. We have uh, and are not in a situation uh, where uh, we would like that uh, to normalize, but we uh, would like that to normalize, of course, uh, also based on Norwegian uh, values and uh, our uh, principles. Um, and uh, as uh, someone that knows a lot about uh, China, um, this is a country where one don't think uh, uh, in a week's time or a month. These are the long, um, it's a country that's thinking in much longer uh, terms. So I think it's basically in China's interest and in Norway's interest for a normalization. That will happen um, sooner or uh, later. But there is currently uh, no sign uh, of a normalization um, in the coming <laughs> Let us hope for the deeper future, as it were. Is it all right if we take two and two questions? Course, so we right. get. Yeah, lady over there at the end, please. We have two microphones, right? Yeah. 
Good. Okay, um, please. Yeah, hi. Thank you very much for the talk. Uh, my name is Charlotte, and I'm a Norwegian student at the LSE. And I wanted to ask uh, about China as well, and more specifically about Tibet. Now, um, you were saying a lot in your talk, and you were opening and ending on this notion of humanitarianism, um, Norway standing up for human rights, opening dialogues across borders. So I just wanted to ask why um, the government refused to meet with Dalai Lama when he was in Norway, and whether you will meet with him when he's coming back to um, the Trondheim Student Festival. Thank you. And we had a question down at the end, didn't we? Yes, the gentleman right at the end of the back. Please, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to the minister for his overview. Um, one question regarding the British debate on uh, Europe at the moment. The minister will be familiar, I think, with, uh, with the different arguments and with those who say that Britain could be just like Norway outside the EU with significant economic ties uh, with Europe. I'd be interested to know whether you think this is a realistic option and a desirable option for Britain. Thank you. <laughs> what I had to Only sick questions, sir. That's the LSE for you. That's yeah. how it is. Thank you. You're facing this every day. Let me illustrate uh, the last question uh, with something that I um, experienced in 1994. I was then the deputy leader of the Conservative Party in Norway, and I was invited to the UK to speak at the Tory conference. That was after the Norwegian referendum, where the Norwegian people, for the second time in our history, turned on a Norwegian EU membership. And I was the deputy leader of the pro-Europe movement in, in Norway. Um, and I came here and was going to then uh, inform about uh, a decision that I, at that time, regretted. So I started uh, at uh, the platform saying, as you all know, uh, Norway just turned down uh, EU membership uh, two weeks ago. And then I got like a standing ovation. <laughs> uh, so I, that, was, that was not the plan. That was not the plan. You know, uh, the current Norwegian government, uh, of course, based our uh, policy towards EU on what the Norwegian people have decided. Uh, for me personally, I have to see, uh, say that uh, European Union uh, has been crucial uh, for the Europe we see uh, today. Um, it is uh, before uh, the Second World War, this was Uh, the place on our planet uh, where all the conflicts were. This was literally uh, the Gaza, Israel, Palestine, you had wars following wars. And what the European Union started with the coal and steel uh, union uh, initiated was starting to trade with each other, making sure that you're more relying, you, you really, your job, your future, Uh, was relying on other European countries. And for me, uh, EU uh, is a construction for peace. And uh, that's why also the EU uh, got the Nobel Peace Prize uh, a couple of years uh, ago. This, of course, uh, that was the committee's uh, decision. Um, but, you know, it is, of course, up to the Uh, voters and, and uh, British people to decide as they did in 72 and also decide uh, on uh, what they feel is the best uh, way uh, 
of uh, relating uh, to the EU as it is uh, for the Norwegian people. My job is now to secure that Norway's interest is as um, well taken care of as possible when it comes to the EU. And the EU, 70-80% of our export goes to the internal market. And uh, we are in forefront of implementing all the directives that are decided in Brussels as an EEA member. And we're trying to influence these decisions as a non-member because they mean a lot to us. I will not elaborate more on that. Um, so to the question uh, about uh, China and Tibet, uh, like uh, the leaders in UK, uh, Denmark, uh, Netherlands and Germany, uh, we chose last time uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama was in Norway, uh, not to meet with uh, him. Uh, of course, uh, there are uh, different uh, ways of looking at that and I have full respect of um, people that think we should have come uh, to a different uh, conclusion. But um, in the situation uh, currently, uh, I think that was uh, the right one for our country, the right decision. Thank you. More questions? Yes, the gentleman of the side over there. Yes, please. Please. Uh, thank you for your interesting speak. I'm a Danish student here at DLC. And, um, Can you my, speak up a little? Sorry. Did you hear me? Um, uh, my question goes to, uh, with the Russia and uh, Norway relations. Traditionally, as I see it, Norway has had good relations with, with Russia. So uh, which role do you see for Norway um, going forward uh, with Russia? What should be the criteria for uh, loosening sanctions? Or should we even have uh, tougher sanctions towards Russia? And yes, especially what should be the uh, the role for Norway, also vis-a-vis uh, the EU. Uh, hi, my name is Sarah Stephanie. I'm also from Norway. Uh, Norwegian government is currently financing a hospital in northern Syria run by the Islamic State. And I was wondering how the ministry can guarantee that uh, Norwegian money aren't uh, ending up in the wrong hands. And how are we controlling and managing our projects abroad? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on the relationship between uh, Norway and, and Russia, this has been based on Norway's membership in NATO since uh, 1949. You're right that we are also sharing uh, not so much a uh, border onshore, but we are sharing uh, the Barents Sea and huge areas when it comes uh, to oceans. Uh, we, Norway is in the situation where uh, our areas when it's related to oceans is six times uh, larger than um, our uh, land area. And uh, we do have, of uh, course, uh, cooperation with Russia when it comes to also uh, then managing uh, resources uh, offshore. For Norway, as a middle-sized economy, uh, a small country uh, in the outskirts of uh, Europe. We have based all our welfare, all our prosperity is based on international cooperation that everyone is sticking to international law and respecting others' borders. And uh, we are, of course, totally aligned with our EU partners and the US 
when we are reacting uh, to uh, equivalent breach of international law like we're seeing in Ukraine. And no, the key is with Mr. Putin. If he wants to unlock this, he can just pull back the Russian soldiers in Donbass. He can also then start to respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Of course, there have been voices also in Norway saying, oh, you export to uh, Russia all the Norwegian export of fish was now banned uh, to Russia, our second most important fish market. Norwegian salmon not anymore on the tables um, of, uh, of the luxurious restaurants in, uh, in Moscow. But uh, these are principles for us that uh, are uh, the most important ones. We will not compromise on these principles, but there are, of course, areas where we will continue uh, to also collaborate with, uh, with Russia. Uh, we, as I said, we are managing the largest uh, stocks of cod in the world, one million ton cod um, from the Barents Sea every year. This is managed together with Russia. We have cooperation on um, when it comes to nuclear safety, uh, the environment, on safety, uh, on, uh, on safety, rescue, uh, in the Barents Sea. This will continue, people-to-people -people cooperation, research and development. Uh, this has been developed during the last two decades and will continue. At the same time, we are very, very firm, and that was also my message to uh, Sergei Lavrov when he was in Norway. And normalization is up to Russia. We have done nothing wrong, quite the contrary. We have not breached international law. They have to come back and uh, comply with their international obligations. On the situation uh, in uh, Syria, uh, the uh, information uh, that uh, you shared was uh, then uh, informations, uh, information that uh, came out of from yesterday uh, in Norwegian uh, news where uh, some people uh, heard from uh, Syria claim that a hospital run uh, a hospital inside Syria uh, that a Norwegian NGO has been running together with an American humanitarian organization and Qatari Red Crescent had been taken over by ISIL. And the Norwegian NGO clearly says that this is not the case. This is not run by ISIL. We would like to continue to also treat people in occupied areas by ISIL in Syria. We cannot run away. The humanitarian imperative says, tells us that we need to also treat patients that um, are uh, ill and threatened in Syria. What is not acceptable, and that's why I also personally asked no, for a report from this NGO, if ISIL has anything to do with the running of the hospital, if ISIL, a terrorist organization as ISIL, will have a say in which patients to treat and hope to run the hospital, Norwegian support will end immediately. That is not according to the Geneva Protocol. But at the same time, we also have to remind ourselves this is really difficult areas because uh, the Geneva Protocol also says that you have an obligation 
to help the most vulnerable people, even if they're in the occupied territory. Even when the Nazis had occupied land, there were humanitarian organizations operating in there, helping people that were in need, the civilians. So the civilians do need support and help, but it cannot be done um, in collaboration with these kind of terrorist uh, organizations. We had the same situation, for example, in Pakistan, uh, in, um, in Peshawar, where we were running, Norwegian Red Cross was running a field hospital, where we were treating all kinds of patients, even wounded Taliban soldiers. But what I said as Secretary General of Norwegian Red Cross, if the Taliban comes into the doctor's office and say, these are the patients you're treating and these are the patients you're not treating, we're closing the same day. But the humanitarian imperative is that a doctor, when it comes to patients, someone is wounded, you treat them. But according to the Jimmy Doctor. Thank you very much for what was a wonderful overview. Uh, it's probably one of the most comprehensive speeches in 25 minutes they ever heard by a foreign minister at LSE. Uh, so I was deeply impressed by that. I wish we'd had more time for questions, but unfortunately the uh, foreign minister is running a little bit late for his next engagement. Could I ask you please to remain seated as the foreign minister and his delegation exit? Um, Again, thank you very much Sorry, for, a for, that. Wonderful, <laughs> for a wonderful presentation. Thank you so much.